Hey, good morning, Veritas. Good morning to all of you online as well. Glad all of you are here and have joined us. Man, I hope you guys will um, come around for that, that March 6th time of worship because they're, they're going to be hitting record, obviously, so that all of us can benefit. It's kind of self-serving, actually, to do it because we're just going to be able to benefit from being able to hear the worship and, and those songs that are important to our church family. Um, but even for these guys, I mean, like for myself, I don't teach uh, in a vacuum or in a box or something. I, I teach people. And when these guys are leading in worship, they're, they're leading people in worship. And so to have that dynamic of, of putting through that recording, but with all of us joining our voices together and singing, that just makes it awesome. So I hope you guys will be part of that. Um, listen, we're going we're gonna to be jumping into 1 Corinthians 11, continuing our journey through the book of 1 Corinthians but I actually want to start in a different book. So if you're already in 1 Corinthians, hold your, hold your finger there in 1 Corinthians 11. But I want you to go back to the book of James with me. Um, if you were newer to your Bible, the book of James is actually to the right of 1 Corinthians. In fact, it might be easier to start with Revelation and make your way back to the left to find James. Um, just after Hebrews, if you find Hebrews, just go a little bit to the right. Um, the book of James. I was reading James this, this last week and came to chapter 2, and it was really enlightening to me, and in fact, helped me even understand more the dynamics of what's going on in 1 Corinthians 11. And so I thought, man, I just want you guys to, to see the connection and to also um, appreciate all over again how there's such a cohesive message in the Bible. There's, there's such a a clear thread of truth that just ties the whole thing together. So we're going to see things kind of bouncing off one book into the other pretty fluidly and easily and reinforcing some, some basic general truth. So anyway, in James 2, um, here's what he says. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, oh, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, hey, can you go stand over there? Or, hey, even better, can you sit here on the floor by my footstool? Haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor? Don't the rich oppress you? Dot, dot, dot. So he's going to go on to a little riff on the, on the rich. But I just want to stop there. Um, this idea of favoritism, this idea of, of distinguishing one group from another, deciding who's on the in crowd, who's on the out crowd, who are the haves, who are the have-nots. This is, it, you guys, it just so flies in the face of the gospel and what Jesus is, is intending for his people. It flies in the face of who he is as our Savior, like he takes this really seriously. When we start making these distinctions, that's the way James talks about it, making these distinctions, looking at the outward, like here, here's what is really sick about it, you guys. Um, 
we rob people of their dignity and even the honor that they have as image bearers, they become kind of commodities at this point, right? Because if you really look good, I want you close to me because maybe people will think I'm really good if I'm around people that are really cool and really good. Oh, but if I get too close to people that I think are on the outs, the have-nots, oh, maybe people will think I'm one of those people. And it just, it just gets sick, right? This idea of favoritism. Um, here's the deal, guys. Um, Jesus has these house rules that we need to pick up on. So every family, and I'm not talking about house rules like poker, okay? I'm talking about house rules like all of you who grew up in a household that has some house rules, you'll, you'll know what I mean by this. Like, for instance, one of the house rules in the Dodge household is, especially for the boys, put the lid in the seat down, okay? After you're done in the bathroom, you got to put that down. In fact, if mom walks by the bathroom and sees, hey, who was in here last? Like, that's just one of those cardinal rules, um, except the bathroom that's right off the bedroom. There, just the lid is up and the seat down. There's all these rules and kind of by rules to it that I have to know and memorize. Okay, so anyway, there's more important ones, like for our household at least, it was hey, when a guest comes to the door, you get up and you go greet them. So even to this day, like my adult kids kind of just get up. They know that's just what you do. You just greet people, that kind of thing, right? These house rules. Well, here's what I'm saying. Jesus has house rules for the way that we're to, to function in his household, in his family, right? And there's not a ton of them, okay, at all. There's a few, and he thinks very strongly about them. And here's what I'm saying. Jesus could not be clearer in his house, you honor one another. And said in the inverse, like we're having in James 2 and what we're going to discover in 1 Corinthians 11, when you dishonor, especially the have-nots, and you favor the haves, guys, I'm just telling you right now, it really ticks Jesus off. It ri- we're going to see that's not... That's not more generous language than I should be using. I'm saying it ticks him off. He's got ways that he wants his household to run, his family to act. And when we show favoritism, I'm just saying be warned because he takes this really, really seriously. Okay? So here's what I want to do. I want to go back now to 1 Corinthians 11 because in 1 Corinthians 11, here's what we're going to find. Um, The Corinthians are stepping all over the James 2 house rule. They are breaking this thing like crazy. And so Paul's in there warning them because he's like, hey, guys, Jesus takes this super seriously. You guys, you guys got to stop doing this favoritism thing. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to start in verse 17. Here's what Paul says. Chapter 11, verse 17. Now, in giving this instruction... I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Okay, I actually wrote in my margin, ouch, with an exclamation point. He's saying, you guys, you are worse off for having come together than had you not even gathered at all. This is shocking language. This is like really abrupt I need to get your attention, Corinthian church kind of language. You are worse off for having gathered than had you skipped it. Let's keep going. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. 
indeed, it's necessary that there be these factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together then, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk? Look, don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. Now, like there's even an exclamation point after that one. Like he is serious. Guys, this is, this is bad. This is bad. Because Jesus loves having his family gather. The, the way all of us love family gatherings, I'm saying Jesus loves it when his family gathers. And this, again, is one of those truths that's, that starts in the earliest pages of our Bible. I was, I was reading Deuteronomy this last week, and... Um, I was reading that part where he starts describing the three different festivals, the three different feasts that are supposed to happen every year for the old covenant family of God. And every time they were to come together, whether it was the feast of Passover, the the festival of booths, whatever it is, when they came together, there's one word that is used over and over by Moses as he wrote Deuteronomy, joy, joy. It was like this moment for cousins to see each other three times a year. We're all going to get together and we're going to eat and we're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate what God has done for us in bringing us out of Egypt. Our forefathers were such, here we are. We're going to celebrate the harvest. Look what God has done. He continues to provide for us. Like every time there was reason to have joy and celebrate. And it was really important because it gave all of God's people like this identity, this, this shared identity. We have this in common. Now we're going to pack up and we're all going to go our separate ways. But this we have in common. We are God's people. He has delivered us. He has taken care of us. He has covered us like this beautiful set of rituals to bind the people of God together. So carry that through. The church is actually a little bit of a mini version of that. When the church gathers, there's supposed to be joy. We share together in something that's really important. Now, we might pack up and all go our separate ways, but when we come back together, especially when we celebrate communion together, this is our common bond. This is the thing that makes us a church. This is the thing that makes us the people of God is, look what God has done for us. Look how he's continued to carry us to this point. Look who we are and what we celebrate together, right? So, when God looks down, and sees that we're messing with that very formula that I just described, when we start making our gathering an opportunity to humiliate people, when our very gathering wars against the reason that we're gathering because we're having divisions among ourselves, guys, it ticks him off. So he's up there in heaven watching down and we even use these opening worship songs to invite him in, to welcome him in, to sing his name. And then all of a sudden, if right after we get done singing, we're starting to like humiliate, I mean that, that word there, humiliate one another. It just goes against everything that he's brought us together to celebrate, right? Because here's the gospel. Here's the gospel that holds us together. This, this, this bond that we're supposed to have is that Jesus looked down and saw that we were poor, right? 
He looked at us and saw that we were blind, that we were incapable of coming to his meal, incapable of coming into his kingdom. And he looked past that and he gave so that we could live. He laid down rights so that we could have rights. He he went through all that he went through so that we could have life and we could become, in James 2 language, rich in faith heirs of a kingdom, and so we're to come in with joy and gladness, right? And he's saying, and you're using that very thing as a tool to humiliate some of my people? So one other thing that might help picture what's going on here is in the first century church, they rarely had buildings like this. They eventually did, and and sometimes even in the first century did, but it took a while to kind of get established. So often they were meeting in homes all over the place, right? So it makes sense that the people with the biggest homes were usually the places that more people could gather in there, right? And so they tended to be what? Wealthy people with bigger homes, right? And so here's what you get the idea is what was going on in Corinth is some of the wealthiest people with the biggest homes Wanted to have a meal together. It's a very Mediterranean culture. I don't know if you've ever been able to travel around in the Mediterranean, but it's this warm culture where food and hospitality is a, is a really big deal, kind of maybe like the Hispanic culture, like a very warm, hey, if we're all together, we better eat, you know, kind of maybe it's an Iowa culture. I don't know. So we're always going to eat. We're always going to have festivals. So part of gathering as a church was almost always including a meal. Hey, as long as we're all here, let's cook it up, you know, let's have some meal. So here's what would go on though, apparently. Some of the rich people would want to do that, but they didn't necessarily want all the kind of riffraff in God's church to be there. So they'd, they'd send out special invitations, right? So the, the guy that is kind of poor, but man, he's a Christian. He's excited. He got the memo that, that the church was going to gather at this time at this house. So he shows up at that place at a certain time. But man, did I get here late? Did I get the wrong memo? Like, it, it seems like they're all in the middle of a meal. I didn't get invited? Like, how would that make you feel? Show up at three, but everybody else showed up at one. And they're just finishing up. Or, worse yet, you did show up in time for the meal, and they're like, oh, actually, can you, we've got a place for you out there. Can you go sit at that picnic table outside? Because we're going to, that's the kind of scene <laughs> that's going on here. And I'm telling you, it, and then, here's the, here's the worst part. Then it's time for communion, and now all of a sudden everybody gets holy, Right? Dishes are clean. Oh, now it's time to remember Jesus and what he's done for us. So now we're all just going to get real holy. We're going to fold our hands. and Come on, everybody, let's all join together. Well, how would that make you feel if you were the humiliated one? Oh, now we're all equals? Oh, now we're just going to go through this religious thing? And you can see why Paul is so incensed, right? It, it's just kind of destroying people. It's, it's pretty sick, actually. So what he wants to do is he wants to say again, hey, here's what's supposed to be happening when you come together. So that's what he does now, starting in verse 23. And these are familiar words because it's one of the most complete versions of what happens when we share communion together. So here's what he says, starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. Like this is what I'm, you learned how to do this right. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Jesus is giving us a family meal, right? He's giving us this, this ritual to remind us of some really important things. He uses the word, he starts, this was the night that he was betrayed, that this all happened. So he's saying, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was actually using that very moment to befriend you. Jesus would suffer betrayal so that you could enjoy friendship, so that you could be welcomed, so that you could be part. When his body was broken, right, his body was being broken and we were being protected. His body was going to take the place of our body being broken. So as he was being broken, he's saying, and this is for you. It's for you. I'm going to take the hit so that you don't have to, so that you could live. When his blood was being poured out, it was so that we could be given life. The promise of a new, a promise, a new covenant in his blood for us. There's, there's this awesome verse in 2 Corinthians, actually, 2 Corinthians 8, it says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, what's it say next? For your sake, he became poor. He was rich, but because he loved you enough and he saw you had nothing, he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. (laughs) You might become rich in faith, heirs of a kingdom, right? 2 Corinthians 8, 9. That's, that's what's supposed to draw us together is just this focus. Remember Jesus. That's what he says. Proclaim his death and do this in remembrance of me, he says. So who should be invited to take communion? Who should be invited to the table? So even today, we're going to have communion. So at Veritas Church, who should be invited to participate in the table? Basically anybody who understands that you have actually no right to be here. If you really embrace that by rights, you don't belong. If you really embrace with humility the fact that you don't deserve to have a seat at the table in the kingdom. If you embrace that with all your heart and then receive the invitation for Jesus to say, yep, I know you don't have anything, come anyway, then you probably, then you belong. Anybody that realizes that they're bankrupt and need the riches of Christ, anybody who proclaims the death of Christ as their only hope, you belong at the table. Conversely then, who should be afraid to take communion? Who should be afraid to take part in the table? Well, that's what he goes on to say. That's the question that he's now going to answer for them, starting in verse 27, okay? So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. Guys, in my margin, I wrote the word, wow. Like, don't miss what he's saying. He's saying some of you have so violated this habitually over and over that he's making some of you physically sick to wake you up. In fact, when it says some have fallen asleep, that's in the New Testament a euphemism for when a Christian dies. So they're Christians. He's talking to them as brothers and sisters, but they have so violated this that he's like, you know what? I'd actually rather get you out of there. 
I'm just going to take you home because your presence there is doing something so destructive. I'm going to try to wake you up. And if that doesn't work, I'm going to get you out of there because you're ruining something very precious about my family and about my church. Wow, that is powerful. But verse 31, if we were properly judging ourselves, we wouldn't be judged. Like if we just took a look in the mirror, if we just did the work of understanding what we're doing, yeah, we're safe. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined. He's trying to just get our attention so that we may not be condemned with the world. He wants us to walk in line with the beauty of the gospel. Look at verse 33. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. That's how simple is this, right? Here's the antidote to judgment. When you come together, welcome one another. If anyone's hungry, just eat at home so that when you gather together, you'll not come under judgment. I'll give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. So who should be afraid to come to the table? Well, we found out back a couple chapters ago, chapter, uh, or actually just one chapter ago, chapter 10, that if, um, if you are just flagrantly being a hypocrite, if you are flagrantly coming to the table of Jesus and also chasing after idols, chasing after other things that get more of your attention, more of your worship, more of your preoccupation than Jesus. If you're just, you just boldly are just flagrantly hypocritical, idolatrous, then you should be afraid. You should be examining yourself and make sure Jesus is primary as you're celebrating communion especially, okay? But here, it's a different thing. Here, it's examine yourself, right? That's what he says. Make sure you're not coming in an unworthy manner. Examine yourself then. This time, make sure you're not so preoccupied with yourself that you are simultaneously humiliating other people, excluding other people. Somehow, in your preoccupation, in your universe of me, you're making other people feel like they don't belong. When the reality is, they don't, and neither do you. But Jesus has opened his arms wide and welcomed you all to his table for forgiveness. And he's like, man, God is seeing this, and you should be connecting the dots because some of you are actually suffering the judgment of God right now. Like, that kind of language makes us a little nervous. Some of us are like, wait, isn't that Old Testament God? I didn't think New Testament God acted like that. You know, no, I'm saying this is the same God, Genesis to Revelation. And he is saying, my family, all my sons and daughters are so important to me that if I find out that one of you is just, you know, habitually making others feel humiliated and excluded, I'd rather pull you out of the family and deal with you one-on-one -on -one than let you constantly erode the faith of the people around you. That's scary stuff. But that's what's going on in the Corinthian church. Guys, God wants his house and his family to reflect his heart. That's why I love the antidote. Brothers and sisters, when you come together, welcome one another. <laughs> welcome one another. Be sacrificial. Be compassionate right? Come join us. That, these doors should be flung open wide and people that feel like they don't have a place in church, oh, I can't go to church because I'm not cleaning up. You should be saying, oh yeah, me either. You should come. You're going to love this place. I, I was just reading in Isaiah recently. I love Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who is thirsty, 
Come to the water, this huge invitation. I love this next line. And you, without silver, come buy and eat. You're like, no, I just said I don't have any silver. I know, come buy this water. But I, I would, I don't have any silver. Exactly, come buy and eat. That's what Isaiah is saying. Like, come buy wine and milk without silver, without cost. You come. Like Veritas, our doors should be open wide. And when people say, oh man, I, I'm so bad off. I don't have... I'm so broken, I can't come. You say, oh, no, 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 no. I'm broken too. But here's the cool thing. Because I decided to come, Jesus is actually fixing my brokenness. I'm actually a different person because he welcomed me when I was completely broken, but I'm starting to make sense of life now. You gotta come, you gotta come. Not because you're gonna find people all whole, but man, we're on our way. And Jesus wants to pull you into that too. But I'm, I'm broke. I got nothing. I know. Me either. We come with nothing. And he welcomes us because of his grace, because of his love. You got to come. He loves broken, bankrupt people. And he loves to start filling them with wholeness and flourishing. Jump into the family. So guys, we've got to take communion seriously. Every time we gather, it's important, but especially communion. And so when we come to these passages, we do communion so often as a church family that sometimes I I fear that we just kind of go through the motions without actually thinking about what we're doing. And this passage is giving us an opportunity to hit pause and say, wait, why are we doing what we're doing? So what I want us to do, I I, I saved a, a few moments today for us to do that very thing, examine ourselves. That's what it's calling us to do, right? examine ourselves. So the worship team's going to come up, and we're going to have communion, as is our custom, and I'll explain that in a moment. But, but before we go on, I just want all of us to take a deep breath and really take some time to examine ourselves. So will you pray with me? I want to I give you a few moments here to be able to take some time before we take communion. Examine yourself. Now it might be that in these moments, you've got some real idolatry. You've got some things that are vying for your attention, constantly drawing you. It's as if you're worshiping something else out there that's actually just completely taking away from Jesus. Confess that. Just make it right. Bring it into light. Receive the forgiveness. Let Jesus sing songs of redemption over you. Maybe, too, what the Spirit wants to do is He helps you examine yourself to look into the mirror as you've gotten so preoccupied with yourself that you're not thinking about the others who should be welcomed in. Maybe it hasn't looked quite as flagrantly as what we're seeing here in 1 Corinthians 11. Maybe it has, but, but you know 
kind of categorized people, kind of decided who's in, who's certainly not. And now maybe the Spirit's revealing that to you and just confess that, just bring it into light. Find his restoration in your soul. Just come clean. How is it that we could take something so vital, so important, and turn it into such a, a trivial thing that we we just do casually? Forgive us for that, Lord. And I want to thank you right now that in you there is forgiveness. And you, you constantly step in and you love us right where we are. And you're eager to restore us. You're eager to make us and you're eager to make your family, your church, just a beautiful, beautiful display of the gospel. And Jesus, we're most happy when we find ourselves most like you. And so we welcome this, this kind of invasive thing that you're doing as we examine ourselves because we get blind to it. And so thank you for, man, just turning the light on, showing us what's really true and helping us conform to truth, to the gospel. Keep doing that work, Jesus keep doing that work in us and we know you will that's our confidence in your faithfulness in Christ's name